Hi guys, it's Mrs. Rodriguez. I just wanted to add a quick update before you get into this week's podcast about Just Mercy. We talked um, a couple times throughout the podcast, especially at the end, talking about next week's film that we've chosen, Malcolm X, um, which was on Netflix. But after we got off, we realized that it's no longer available to stream on Netflix. Um, its subscription was up for whatever reason. So we decided to um, change next week's podcast to be about Hamilton, the um, film version of the Broadway play by Lin-Manuel Miranda, which is available starting today, Friday the 3rd on Disney+. Plus. So I'll make sure I add that in the description. But if you hear us talk about Malcolm X, we didn't realize that it wasn't available anymore. And we will talk about Hamilton next week. So if you're interested in discussing Hamilton, just send me an email um, or reach out to us on Twitter and we'll make sure that we can get you included in that. Hope you enjoy. Happy summer, everybody. Welcome to the first edition of Distant Poets Society Summer Edition. We're not reading books. We are watching movies, but these movies are very good and they are very, very thought provoking. And we wanted to kick things off with the 2019 film Just Mercy, starring Michael B. Jordan and Jamie Foxx and Brie Larson and Tim Blake Nelson and O'Shea Jackson Jr. And the guy from Daredevil, not not Daredevil, but the guy that was like the first bad guy in Daredevil. Thank you. Three people that understand that reference. But anyway, I don't understand it. (laughs) Uh, I'm here with Miss Rodriguez and Miss Ramirez, as always. No students volunteered to join, but that's okay. They wanted to make sure this wasn't a complete and total train wreck before they joined. But um, we are here to talk about Just Mercy, and Miss Rodriguez has some wonderful focusing questions for us, and we're going to go through all those, and we're going to make sure that we talk about this. Mm-hmm. Well, before we start, I just remembered that I was supposed to prepare a summary, and I didn't, but it's okay because, you know. It's just a it's just a podcast. So I'm just gonna read it from Google, like you know, our students would if they were preparing for a podcast. Absolutely. Uh, so just Summer, it's okay. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's fine. Um, so after graduating from Harvard, Brian Stevenson, who's played by Michael B. Jordan, heads to Alabama to defend those wrongly condemned or those not afforded proper representation. One of his first cases is that of Walter McMillan, who is sentenced to die in 1987 for the murder of an 18-year-old girl. Despite evidence proving his innocence in the years that follow, Stevenson encounters racism and legal and political maneuverings as he tirelessly fights for McMillan's life. That was our summary. Um, And so we are going to start off with the social and historical context of this film, which is based on a true story. So um, this isn't just someone taking what they know about history and writing a fictional story. This is a real life story. Um, Real life people. Right. So it's not just the context. It's just like, when did it happen and where did it happen? Um, So it takes place in Alabama in the late 1980s and it creeps into the 1990s. Um, And I thought it was interesting because I could relate to this. Uh, Brian Stevenson, the lawyer, he's from the North and then he comes to the South and he kind of has to adjust to like the South's way of living, which is very relatable for me. Mm -hmm. Me too. Not me. I was born (laughs) Well, I was born in Maine, but I've lived, I grew up in San Antonio, so I have a very um, strong Southern bias. But that's actually what the movie kind of digs into. Um, it's not, it's not heavy-handed. It's not um, shock value, but it is very uncomfortable, probably all the way through. So 
you know, if you were looking for for a good feel good movie that's going to teach you about racism, this is not one of those movies. This is not Remember the Titans. This is not um, Cool Runnings. Nah, I don't know, but like Cool but, Runnings is a lighthearted movie. I don't remember. I don't know if racism. Everything about it. But but yeah, this is this is an uncomfortable movie about a very well educated black lawyer that finds himself in the heartland of. Uh, wait, is Dixie in Alabama or Mississippi? Dixie's the South, isn't it? The whole yeah, but it's a specific state. I so I don't rem- the the city that it takes place in is Monroeville, I think, mm-hmm. which is the where Harper Lee, the writer of To Kill a Mockingbird, grew up. And so oftentimes the people that live there tell Brian Stevenson, like, this is the home of To Kill a Mockingbird. You can, like, this is where Atticus Finch grew up and where he was a lawyer and fought for justice. Um, and so that contrasts their, like, ideal belief that, like, well, this this is the town of justice. So where anything we do is filled with justice to, like, the actual workings of the legal system. Um, and a lot of it takes place on death row because all these, um, the men that he, uh, Brian is helping is on death row. Um, so it's, it's not just like taking place in Alabama, it's taking place in a federal prison, which is very unique and something that like, I don't know much about, um, but it definitely is different. Absolutely. I found it. I found it funny that it was, you know, the people who said, "Have you been to the Harper Lee Museum? Have you know to the Kill a Mockingbird Museum?" In the film, it was like the secretary at the DA's office and then the DA himself. They said that, and yeah, they have this sense of pride that this is where To Kill a Mockingbird and this story of justice happened, but they missed out like the whole racial inequality. They missed out the whole racial injustice component of it. And mm-hmm. I found it so ironic. And also the name of the judge that uh, Robert E. Lee was the name of mm-hmm. the that, that overturned uh, Johnny D's um, sentence, right? Yeah. Uh, I think Robert, uh, he, he was the first judge that convicted him. Not right, the right, one, right. Not the one yeah, that overturned. Yeah. But, but yes, um, I, I agree that, that it's ironic that they mentioned to him about the you know, To Kill a Mockingbird was written here. You can say where Atticus Finch was. Because I think that the whole, the the, the filmmaking choice of that, because mm-hmm. while I would love to believe that Brian Stevenson was, you know, approached by two different people upon entering Monroeville, like you should really go to the Harper Lee Museum or you, you should go to that. <laughs> I feel like that was the movie kind, kind of trying to show us the veneer that a lot of Southern um, cities still have. Uh, there's a point in, and it's towards the end of the movie where, uh, Brian Stevenson and is sitting there with I cannot remember her name. Um, it's the woman that Brie Larson is playing. I know. Eva Ansley. Yeah, Eva Ansley. So he's sitting there with Eva Ansley, and he's mentioning uh, how this is where a lot of the Middle Passage trades would happen in that mm-hmm. state. And he talks about how, like, I, I don't remember the exact quote, but he's like, "They work so hard to make you think that it's different," uh, mm-hmm. but in actuality it isn't because at that point they had already tried to get the retrial and it got shut down by the um district or by by the district judge Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and also that to kill a mockingbird you know the time setting for that whole story is 1936 and you're talking about the late 1980s almost 50 years and what has really changed 
Right. 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 Because like uh, Johnny D, who's played by Jamie Foxx, he's Walter McMillan, but his nickname is Johnny D. His case mirrored Tom Robinson's case so well from To Kill Mockingbird. I taught mm -hmm. freshmen my first year, and I actually taught To Kill Mockingbird with sophomores up in Michigan outside of Detroit. And like, the book is long. It's 365 pages. There is a lot going on in that book. Um, and I think it's hard for freshmen to digest. But the part that always stood out to my students was the courtroom scene where Atticus Finch talks about the evidence and he talks about the lack of evidence. And then the fact that the jury convicts Tom Robinson of raping Mayella Yule on Mayella's lies that you can tell is very pressured by her father who probably abuses her. Um, and so it's like a very similar, like, cause, you know, a bunch of 14 year olds who didn't pay attention to the book, they pay attention to that scene because we would set it up like a courtroom and we would like read it. We had different parts. Someone set it up like a script. Um, and they all were blown away that he was convicted, but the same thing happened to Johnny D. There's mm -hmm. no physical evidence. He was mm -hmm. convicted based on someone lying on the stand One and Right. And it, the exact same thing is happening 50 years later in the same area. Right. Um, and it's not just like a one-time thing. I looked up Alabama's demographics based on race. So the general population, so everybody living in the state in 1990, 25.3% uh, of Alabama's population was black. And the prison population, so in state and federal um, prisons in 1990 was 62.7%. So Black people in Alabama at the time made up 25% of the population, but over half of the prison population. So these black and black men and women in Alabama at the time were being imprisoned at a greater rate than any other race. And so the mm -hmm. same things, it wasn't just Johnny D. This was happening, you know, right. across the board in the state. Well, right. and, and if we want to get really into the, the kind of like reasoning behind that was this was like right in the middle of the mass incarceration problem. Right. Can you explain what the mass incarceration problem is? Absolutely, for I will. Our listeners. So, so um, the issue with uh, mass incarceration is essentially politicians, not 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 Republicans, not a Democrats, just politicians in general. Whenever mm -hmm. they are trying to go for election, they will usually find some sort of group to scapegoat or or some sort of group to kind of crack down on and to um, allow them to be scapegoated or to be kind of sacrificed, if you will, for the sake of, uh, you know, gaining more, more votes and gaining more uh, popularity. So what happened mm -hmm. in uh, the 80s was uh, it was all about crime. And now if you've seen the documentary 13th, unfortunately, it is not on our list of things to watch, but you should watch 13th because I do believe that that is probably one of the most important documentaries that's going to come out in our lifetime, in our generation, mm -hmm. because it, it does a much better job of explaining um, how we got from slavery being abolished to where we are now. But essentially the problem is after slavery was abolished, they didn't really set up a way for all of those slaves to be accounted for or, uh, or to be kind of given, you know, their reparations for, for freedom. So what would happen is they would allow uh, these freed slaves to be demonized in media. This is when birth of a nation came out. And then mm -hmm. since they got demonized, the idea was that, that black people committed more crimes than other people. Which, mm -hmm. um, if if we're gonna throw statistics into the issue, is just um, I don't like comparing all statistics to disprove or prove racism. But at the but at the same time, Miss Rodriguez already said it. You know, by the time it was the 1990s, a disproportionate amount of black people were in uh, prison, 
And as you can see around the story of this one movie based on a book of real events that happened, this man was put in prison for no reason at all. Um, it was it was because of a convicted felon lying on the stand to get himself an easier sentence. Mm -hmm. And if we look in the movie, um, Tim Blake Nelson, who also plays Mr. Sir in Holes. No, which... he plays mom. Mr. Sir is John Voight. Oh, yeah. Sorry, you're right, I you're love right. Holes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes. John Voight is Mr. Sir. Uh, he plays, what's his name? Mom. They call him mom. He's mom. like a doctor. Right. They call him mom, but that's he's not right. a doctor. He's yeah. the one that's like really mean to Zero and then gets hit with the shovel. Yeah, he calls everybody by their given name except Zero because there's nothing going on in his stupid little head. I love that movie so much. Sorry. Good quote. Also, Holes is the best uh, film adaptation of any book ever. Well, I don't, I don't know. This is based on a book too. But anyway, I'm getting ahead of myself. <laughs> the point is, um, uh, the doc from Holes, or mom, if you will, in this movie, he plays, uh, I believe his name is Ralph, Ralph Myers. Uh -huh. and so Ralph Myers was a convicted felon that lied on the stand and told um, the police that at the time were pressuring him because at this point there was an unsolved murder of an 18 year old um, white woman. And uh -huh. so instead of, you know, actually finding the person that did it, they pressured him by, uh, I think, making him sleep next to the room. Like he where they executed next to yeah. the execution room. Uh -huh. And then the very next day, um, convinced him to lie on the stand and put Johnny D up for uh, the murder of this person, even though there was um, there was evidence and alibi that he wasn't even in this in the city at the time. Mm -hmm. And so the whole kind of goal of the movie, I think, is to show that when it comes to truth and enacting justice and law, there are a lot of hurdles that need to be overcome. Um, <laughs> the first one being pride, because um, after the movie ends, there's a couple of pieces of information. So after Johnny D is because spoiler alert, he doesn't he doesn't um, get executed. Brian Stevenson does uh, in fact save him uh, because the Alabama Supreme Court overturns the uh, decision, and mm -hmm. then he does convince the district attorney to uh, recant his case and um, support the motion. So all charges are dropped against him. However, um, it's really telling of the story. Um, the very last, I want to say it's the very last piece of information they give us in mm -hmm. the movie's ending is that they never, um, they never filed any they charges never... against the other person that they suspected to kill. Uh, Rhonda Morrison was her name. And because yeah. it, and it was heavily hinted that the person might've been white, but again, um, it's very telling that they did not pursue the case after Johnny D was, um, was dropped of all charges. And the other thing that kind of didn't sit right with me was the sheriff in the movie played by, I don't know who plays him, but the sheriff is the worst. He's got like the biggest stink I've ever seen. He just retired from that community last year, 2019. Wow. And this movie yeah, he was, he was elected time and time again. Yeah, and I like, they made this whole thing with, so when Brian Stevenson came to Monroeville to try to help out Johnny D, um, and he didn't go in like just assuming Johnny D was innocent. He just wanted to provide representation to right. impoverished people who were put on death row because a lot of times, and they explain a lot of times their lawyers wouldn't even read their, their files. They, cause public defenders are overworked, just like teachers and counselors and, you know, nurses are overworked people who serve the community. And so they sometimes just don't have time. So he was only going in to try to make sure those people had representation. And he right. found that Johnny D was innocent and so he wanted him to have his day his his like true day in court 
Um, and they made such a big deal that he was stirring up problems for Rhonda's family, bringing up like all the pain that they experienced when she was murdered because she was murdered and it, it was, it was a terrible thing that happened and they lost her. Um, but once they found out that Johnny didn't do it, why didn't they work hard to find out who really did it? Right. And I think it was Brian talking to the DA when the, and the DA was pushing back too, as a matter of pride of like, you're not going to question the convictions we've had. Um, Brian brings up, he says, like, if Johnny D's innocent, there's a killer, like roaming free in your community. And mm -hmm. so if they're really looking for justice, they for Rhonda and her family, they should have tried to figure out who killed her, um, not work so hard to keep Johnny D in prison. Correct. Right, right, right. But feeding into the politics of it from, you know, what Quentin was saying that I looked up some stuff about Alabama and until 2017, Alabama's elected judges override verdicts and impose death sentences that override, the overrides usually go up during an election year. Right, like what was said earlier about like the tough on crime and then the war on drugs. and Right, right. right. I kind of I left care left the uh, mass incarceration thing unexplained, but uh, it went from mm -hmm. slaves being freed to um, over-regulating what they were doing to um, essentially Jim Crow laws. And then after Jim Crow laws were, about, were abolished after the Civil Rights Act, mm -hmm. um, leadership uh, in our country wanted to be really, really tough on crime. The problem mm -hmm. was that they weren't just always looking at crime and they weren't always looking at what was the right crime and who was actually committing it. And so what that led mm -hmm. to was thousands of, um, uh, I don't want to, I don't want to say, because when, when it comes to the criminal justice system, uh, you, you have to be processed. And of course th this whole movie is teaching us that, you know, law is important. Um, and, and I'll get into that when we talk about a couple other scenes with, with Michael B. Jordan, but, um, it's important that the law is followed and it's important that the law is followed by everybody. Um, mm -hmm. Otherwise, you know, what's, what's the point of, of it being there. And so by instituting these laws, it made a disproportionate amount of African-Americans incarcerated, whether they were guilty or innocent. Mm -hmm. There've been a lot of stories. Um, I know that, you know, we are still in the midst of the George Floyd protests. Um, mm -hmm. We are still in the midst of the Breonna Taylor protests. We are still in the midst of um, Elijah McClain, which which uh, that one uh, I I've seen a lot of like celebrities saying that, that that one hit them the hardest, and I think that that's because it it was really unfortunate. Well, because it's unfortunate when anyone uh, uh, unknowingly dies, but I think that we've all had a student like Elijah McClain, and we've all like we can see that like personality and i got to i think there was there was an infographic i read on instagram that kind of had his like last words when he was being um when he was being uh subdued by the police and he said like teamwork makes the dream work i understand that and it was so like sweet that even as he's being you know cuz he wasn't doing anything wrong but as he was getting you know wrestled to the ground he's cracking jokes and all that and then if you're not familiar with the story he got um sedated with ketamine, with with ketamine, uh, which is horse tranquilizer, and they gave him way too much body, uh, way too much for his body to process, and so eventually, uh, I think he had total organ failures, um, right, and he mm -hmm. passed away. But I think that the problem that this movie does a really good job of showing is that the system is not necessarily broken, but it was designed Correct. with a lot of people not kept, not 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 kept on the up and up. Like mm -hmm. it's important that, you know, 
all American people, whether they are black, white, Hispanic, Asian, anyone, that if they did something wrong, then they should be punished for it. But if they didn't do something wrong, they shouldn't be punished for it. And I think that that is what uh, Brian Stevenson is trying to get into. Um, while it says at the end of the movie that a lot of it is dramatized, I have no doubt that um, Michael B. Jordan's like opening statements in both of the court proceedings and his closing statements, I have no doubt that that's what Brian Stevenson actually said. Um, he actually does show up in the 13th documentary, and I thought that was really great too. Oh, I don't remember. I watched the 13th a while ago. Um, I think something that's important when we're talking about like the system, the justice system, um, I think what's important to realize is that the justice system was set up in a way that in a perfect ideal world that everybody had the same opportunities and the same access to resources, it would work for everybody. But like mm -hmm. we, we all know that the more money you have, the more access to power and resources and opportunities you have. And if you don't have money, you're like, there's a good chance the justice system is going to work against you. Correct. Um, Cause we can't, we can name plenty of wealthy people who have gotten out of things that we all know they did. Um, and so the justice system affects a lot of poor people unfairly. Um, and like, I brought up the pop the prison population in Alabama of black men and women, but like, I looked at um, Texas death row, which is, we'll talk, I'm sure we'll talk about in a little bit. Um, but I did some research because I, I grew up in Michigan and the death row was, a uh, the death penalty was abolished long before I was born. Um, so I just looked up some stuff and like, no, it's not like you look at the recently executed prisoners in Texas. It's not all black men. That's not what it is. But like you look, you can see the information about them. And I didn't see a single person. I went back like, I think the last 20 executed men and I didn't see anybody that had any college experience. Like a lot of these men dropped out of school before they graduated and they didn't seem like they were from the nicest areas, just like with access to like safety and um, resources, that sort of thing. Like, it's not like they look dangerous, but like people without money are gonna go to jail for longer times than if you had money because you could find a way to get out of things. Um, or just you have a lawyer who knows how to work the system and maybe you're not like getting away with things, but does everybody need to go to prison for decades at a time for something that maybe they could do like treatment for parole or those sorts of things. Correct. So yeah, it, it, this doesn't just affect the black population. This, it, it, it's a money thing, I think really at the root of it. And we just know, um, how our wealth is distributed through the country. And so it affects certain groups more than others. Absolutely. Right. Right. And these poor communities, these men, you know, that are coming out of these poor communities, a lot of it is with the industries breaking down and sending jobs overseas. And there's a frustration level with unemployment, a lack of education. It all adds up. And, you know, you're coming from that kind of frustration. And then, you know, with the justice system that's going to work against you. And you could see it in Johnny D's frustration within the film, not just him, but also the other two prisoners, Herbert and what was the other guy's name? Hinton. And, Hinton. Yeah, Anthony Ray right. Hinton. Yeah, Anthony Which, We can move on the characters. <laughs> that was just yes. a natural transition. Um, yeah, no, like, so. The, the question about characters are who are the characters, what are their traits, um, what conflicts do they face and how do they react to them? And all three of those men on death row that we saw, like when they met with Brian and Brian says, I wanna sit down and like learn your case and see if I can help you. They all kind of were like, well, there's really nothing 
uh, we can do at a different level. Um, right. Johnny D was just kind of like, nope, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna give you any hope because I'm just gonna be let down. Whereas Herbert, um, he suffered from PTSD. He was a Vietnam veteran, mm -hmm. um, and he he made a bomb and it killed a girl. And he's like, I did it. I made that bomb and it killed that girl. But I didn't. I he he was not like a an, an elusive state. He didn't understand why he didn't. He didn't mean to. Right. Um, and so he didn't like feel like he deserved anything. And then Anthony Ray Hinton, um, he seemed kind of hopeful, um, mm -hmm. but I think it was kind of the same thing with Johnny D. Like he didn't want to have too much hope. Right. Because I, I think that at that point, and, and I think that it was really telling because uh, Johnny D played by Jamie Foxx, he was only on death row for what, eight years, I believe. That's a long time, but yeah. yeah, yeah so, <laughs> right, but well, the only reason why I say only is because Hinton, who's played by O'Shea Jackson Jr., uh, Ice Cube's mm -hmm. son, uh, he, he was on death row for 30 years. 30 years. Well, I'm not even 30 years old. I, you're you're close to it, but yeah, no, yeah, but like yeah, Johnny D, I, it's important to note he was put on death row before his verdict was even decided. Because mm -hmm. like, so the system is if you're arrested for something, you're put in jail, and usually they set like bail depending on what crime you're being arrested for. And so if you can pay that bail, you can be released, and you're you stay at home, and then you go to court for all the cor court proceedings, which the system takes a long time. So sometimes it's a year or so. Um, and if you can't afford to pay bail, then you stay in jail. And Johnny D didn't just stay in jail. Jail's different than prison. Yeah. Um, he was put on death row before his court case. Like that, that is insane. And we have the, you know, we, I think everybody's grown up taught in like their social studies segment of elementary school that the American justice system has the belief innocent until proven guilty. And it's just right. that example is the sheriff decided he was guilty. Um, cause he wanted to close that case and, and some other things I'm sure. Um, get on death row. yeah, right. because like, yeah, th there was a brutal murder of a young woman in their community. And if he solved that crime, of course he's going to get reelected. Mm -hmm. Right. Crazy, crazy. Um, I felt so bad for Herbert, the one, the Vietnam that they show him talking to Brian before his execution. And it was just so heartbreaking for him to talk about like, He's gonna die. Right. That was so sad. Uh, there were there were two things about that scene that really messed with me. One of them was that like the the scene where where they're shaving his eyebrows before it happens. Mm -hmm. I was like, oh my gosh, this is barbaric and disgusting. But then the other thing, I looked it up. Uh, or no, wait, I think that we we had talked about it. They can mm -hmm. they can still kill you with the electric chair in 2020 in Alabama. Like a couple other option. states and, and, and a couple other states as well. You can still do the electric chair um, in lieu of lethal injection. And I don't, I don't agree with I, that on any level. Like it just, well, have you guys seen the killing? Uh, like it's, the, a, it's a crime series. Yeah. 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 I, I've never seen it, okay. but I've heard of it. It's very good. Um, but there is a, there's a character who he's on death row and he actually chooses hanging. Um, I think it's, I think it takes place in Washington. He t chose hanging and someone asked him why. And he explained that it's the most pain, painless way to go. He was afraid of the chair. Or he was afraid of the lethal injection. I can't remember all of his options. It depends on the state. Um, but like, it's such a weird thing. We're sitting here talking about like, what's the easiest way to die. And yeah. like, that's the, that's the really one of the really gruesome things about the death penalty and like you, you see it in Herbert 
And like, and then, and you feel so bad too, because he's a Vietnam veteran and he obviously suffers from PTSD and he's just like also having to deal with his planned death. And it's, I don't, I don't know. It's a lot. And I, I recently, so I picked, I've talked about it on the podcast, but I've gotten back in the reading and I'm very proud of myself because I always said I didn't have time with the kids, but now I've just started reading as much as I can. And I read a lesson before dying and it's about a, a black man who was wrongly convicted and put to death. And there, at the end of the book, there's a chapter of his journal entries. And it is this, like, it, it's just like with Herbert, it's so heartbreaking to hear from a person's perspective, like what they're thinking when they know they're going to die. Yeah. Right. Right. And, and, you know, the, the, with Herbert, what broke my heart on top of him being a, a, a vet that served his country was that in his case, he was, he looked for mental health help. Mm -hmm. And yeah. that, was completely obscured from his case and that the fact that he want that he was looking for it and wasn't serviced correctly for it you know and then that triggered him to do this you know putting the bomb on the woman's porch it's just it broke my heart yeah my heart. we should be better to our vets we should be better to to the bottom of our or not, not even the to our vets but also we need to be better to our poor people yeah. Um, and Michael B. Jordan has a really good, I think it's the same scene where he's sitting on the bench with Brie Larson. Um, or no, it's, I think it's in one of his opening statements, I think towards the end of the movie, but we don't need to measure our country by how we treat the wealthy. We need to measure our country by how we treat the most disenfranchised. Yep. Mm -hmm. That's, that's how you, that's how you become a developing, or I mean, that's how you become a developed country. You eliminate the poverty. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Hmm. I think it would be a good chance to talk about Ava Ansley's character. Um, cool, because Brie Larson is amazing. Now, I mean, I was I I like Brie Larson, but I also really liked her character, Eva, that she played. I liked that. Um, I'm trying to think. I'm trying to find a way to describe why I liked her. I liked her hair. It reminded me of pictures of my mom when I was born. Gotcha. All super curly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it was the early '90s. That's fair. Um, what were you gonna say, Mr. Smith? So Brie Larson, um, it's weird because it's it's honestly like very very strange to watch someone that was on like a Disney Channel original movie about like drag racing become an <laughs> Oscar winning actress. But um, and it's also really weird to watch you know Captain Marvel be this 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 person that is this like I I she's the the, head, the, the like director of operations for the Equal Justice Initiative. And she still has that uh, same job. Mm -hmm. But um, I wasn't sure how she would go about acting, but I really did believe where she was coming from. And like, I liked how she played the character because it's very easy to just like watch this movie and be like, oh, it's Killmonger and Captain Marvel like working together to fight racism. But, but <laughs> I didn't even think about that. <laughs> but it's so like, at, 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 at what point do you do you, like, you know, take all the popcorn movies out of your head and just like, look at these people for, you know, their job, like they're, they're acting. And, you know, when, when, when I saw Brian Stevenson at the end of the movie and like, I saw Michael B. Jordan, like he got his like mannerism so well mm -hmm. and the way that he spoke and the way that he, you know, carried himself was super great. Um, but Brie Larson also did an excellent job because I mean, while a lot of people in the Marvel movies, they don't really get a chance to like act, act. Um, mm -hmm. I, I think that, you know, Robert Downey Jr. and Chris Evans 
you know, and to a degree, Scarlett Johansson um, are are probably the outliers to that where, where they do get like dramatic moments where they get to do stuff. But a lot of them don't like they're just kind of like, you know, they're, they're snarky and they punch people. But in this one, it's nice to see her, you know, with like an actual role with with like some good some good meat, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Well, I think she did a really good job, like as a supporting character, because so Brian Stevenson, he came off as like very, I'm try, I was trying to find a way to describe him. I made like a little table, like I would have for my students, character, trait, conflict and response. Mm -hmm. And so for Brian Stevenson, I put like hopeful, persistent, put naive, cause I think he was a little naive at one point. If, like, um, maybe. Yeah, humble, brave. Like, and he was very, he was very idealistic, but he wasn't this very, like, you, it, it was persistent. Like, this is how we're going to go through the, the court system. I'm going to sit down. I'm going to talk to you like a human being and I care about you, but it wasn't like, so we, we chatted earlier and it was, it wasn't a story of like those teacher savior. It wasn't like a lawyer savior. Like he didn't, he didn't right. save Johnny D like he provided legal assistance and Johnny D was innocent, so it worked. Um, right. His drive was like, to serve people, I feel like. Like that was his biggest drive in the film, was to serve those who weren't served well in the justice system or not served mm -hmm. well. Yeah. Right, and then I liked how Brie Larson's character, Eva, was, she seemed like more like gung-ho about like helping these people, but she, she, wasn't the lawyer. So she was like, I'm here to support you and I'm never going to give up. And I really liked that dynamic. Right. Um, I loved the scene where uh, when they first had like a, an office that she had rented and once the, the building owner found out that they were um, helping prisoners yeah. on death row, mm -hmm. he said, no, we're not going to let you do that. And she got all mad and she cussed. And <laughs> then she apologized to her son for cussing. And I really liked it because like, my son's three and we have to work with him about bad words. Luckily they've never been a cuss word. They're just, you know, like stupid and I hate you, that sort of stuff. Right. But like, I liked that moment where she's like very passionate and she, she cussed and then apologized to her son, but then like turned the Brian and was like, buddy was that, you know? And yeah, like, I yeah. liked, I liked that drive, but I liked that she didn't overpower him. And I liked that the, the director and the writer didn't, didn't give her fiery personality, like a way to like shine over Brian Stevenson's character. Uh, Michael B. Jordan's character, Brian Stevenson, who was kind of reserved, but like really, I mean, was a really good lawyer. So yeah. he provided yeah, the most assistance. Tenacity for the both of them. Mm -hmm. And then being like a hometown girl from the area, I think like she knows the corruption and the injustice there. And that's her drive also is to like bring that to justice and try to put light on a system and help people out. One thing that's, oh, I'm, I'm sorry, Mr. Maris. No, go ahead. Um, one, one thing that I thought was really interesting. I, so I watched the trailer for the movie before I watched the movie. Um, but there was a scene that Brie Larson has that was cut um, from the actual movie. And she's talking about when she first like realized um, the like the 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 uh, broken system or not, not even the broken system, but the, but the disproportionate system. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's intercut with that scene where they're sitting on the bench in front of the river. Um, oh, okay. and, she's, and she's like, when I first learned about this, it was like I walked up to a river of just just filled with, with, with drowning bodies. And, mm -hmm. and I wanted to do everything in my power to like stop that from happening or, or, or some sort of degree of that. And yeah. I don't know why they cut that scene from the movie. Maybe maybe it just didn't really make sense in in that moment. But um, 
I still think that that it was a good scene, and I really liked kind of like how how you said, uh, Mr. Rodriguez, that she didn't overpower um, Brian Stevenson because she was just kind of there as a supporting role, and mm-hmm. I think that because uh, I've had a lot of people reach out to me, both coworkers and just people in general, um, that maybe not maybe not necessarily like are like ready to you know fight systemic oppression, but they're like, hey, I'm just kind of like really paying attention to this for the first time. So I don't, I don't want to like, I don't want to stress you out with like, with like how I should go about learning because I'm an adult and I can do that as well. But like, I just like, I have like a couple of questions. Can I help you out with that? And I kind of got that idea where that like Brie Larson kind of realized that, um, you know, she could help in ways that Brian couldn't, but mm-hmm. also it was important for, her to just kind of let him take take lead in certain instances. Um, mm-hmm. The scene where, where they get a bomb threat on their house was really interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and with that, I think she's she's like sitting on a park swing with with uh, um, Brian Stevenson, and she says, "Well, I don't want my kid to to think that I stopped fighting for what was right just because I was scared." Mm-hmm. And, and I thought I thought that that, that was nice. That was really nice. I like that. Um, the what I liked about Michael B. Jordan playing Brian Stevenson um, were the two scenes where my heart stopped and I had like anxiety was when he went into the prison and oh. he was strip searched. Oh, that's that's, that's, that's the like, worst scene in the whole movie. I think. Yeah. Well, that that was three. dehumanizing. Yep. And then mm-hmm. when. He got pulled over by the cops at night and the Mm -hmm. the gun to the head and the officer says, you be careful with your words with a gun, when a gun's at your head or something to that extent. And the tears in his eyes were so expressive and it's just like his mouth. Right, 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 right. When he held his mouth, I felt that. That His lip was quivering, wasn't it? Yeah, it was like, sorry to interrupt you, but like, I just remember his mouth. I could imagine like, I felt that when I've been so angry or so anxious that like really what I would do is cry, mm-hmm. but like you have to hold it together. And I don't know if that was the director or Michael B. Jordan as an actor, but that choice to do that, I, like, I was like, oh my God, I, I knew what he felt exactly in that moment because right. it was crazy. The impression of trauma that and mm-hmm. you, you can feel it like building up in the back of your neck. And when you mm-hmm. do it, you're unleashing all of that frustration. I could feel that, that, that shook me. To me, the uh, strip search scene was like was like the first one that I got really upset about because mm-hmm. I know that like correctional officers are trained in less than four weeks in a lot of instances because it's, it's a it's a very high turnover career. So, yeah. So, um, Brian Stevenson played by Michael B. Jordan. Uh, apparently, in the book, because uh, one of my friends reached out to me and was like, "Hey, in the book, it's a lot worse than it is in the movie." Oh, really? Which is mm-hmm. which is really really unfortunate, but essentially that that CEO that makes him like do a strip search, not even for any legal reasons, because as soon as he asks Michael B. Jordan to do a strip search, he's like, "Oh, I um, I'm I'm a lawyer. I don't have to do that." And he's mm-hmm. like, "Well, you're not getting in this prison without without doing a strip search. So so you go in that room." And then he looks to the to the senior officer and he's reading a magazine, and I was just it was so incredibly like frustratingly true um, mm-hmm. that was happening because he was, I mean, it's, it's dehumanizing to take your clothes off in front of every, anybody, but just, just the fact that he was utilizing his 
very, very like untrained job to someone that, that, that had to spend an extra three years in higher education and take one of the hardest tests in, in like all of academia. And he re- just reduced him to just another black person. I thought that that was really, really uncomfortable and, but it was a good uncomfortable. Uh, but the scene where he gets pulled over, man, that was, uh, that was- in the, 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 the whole time, what are you arresting me for? What are you charging me for? I'm getting out of the car. And he's, and he's like, well, well, what are you pull, pulling me over for? And instead of just answering the question, the cop pulls out his gun because they're allowed to do that. Um, and it was just, it was all a scare tactic. And then mm-hmm. after they, as soon as they like pulled it, like as soon as they don't have the gun in his head anymore, he turns and like, he's, I mean, while he's, his lip is quivering and he's upset. Well, what, what did you stop me for? And they don't say anything and they just get in the car and drive away. And, mm-hmm. you know, that is so incredibly upsetting that someone in someone that is supposed to protect and serve the, their community would instead use um, lethal force for a scare tactic because he's trying to disrupt the status quo. I don't I don't see why that is legal and I don't see why that is why, why that shouldn't be met with with immediate, um, you know, disciplinary action. Oh, that scene also happened shortly after he left the sheriff's office, right? I thought. Yes. So, yeah, oh, he right. doesn't get pulled over by the cops until um, until he he starts making ripples. I think after he talked to the DA the first time. Well, yeah, and then Sheriff Tate and the DA are sitting in the office like it's an old boys' club. Oh, they're just hanging out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and then I think if I'm not mistaken, Brie Larson's character refers to it as the Dixie Mafia of some sort that goes on. In this I office. think I think you're right. Mm-hmm. And you know they they feed into the corruption into this very racist system, and they're just hanging out. And then he tries to share the sheriff tries to intimidate um, Brian also while they're sitting there, you know, with his words. And it says that this uncomfortable exchange. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the DA, um, the character's name was Tommy Chapman. He wasn't. He was on Black Mirror, right? The actor. Maybe. What episode? I don't know, but I just I saw him and I thought he was in Black Mirror. Maybe not, but anyways, um, I thought his character was really interesting. I think he was the one that probably showed the most development. I don't know like exactly his motivations. I mean, obviously, I'm guessing this is true that the DA did eventually support Brian Stevenson's motion to drop all charges against Johnny D. Right. Um, but I, it's interesting that like maybe they cut some scenes, but. The only thing I think I even saw was when Brian Stevenson did the 60 Minutes special yeah. to like show people that John, they thought Johnny D was innocent because Johnny D had a bad reputation because he had an affair with a white woman. Yeah. Um, and so people started rumors about him. And so he was watching it and he was interviewed the DA and he said like he, he supports this and um, he wasn't gonna go back against it. And his wife kind of just gives him a look and then maybe the time that Brian Stevenson comes to his house and talks to him. But other than that, it was a very quick switch from supporting the sheriff, you know, being in that boys club of we're, we're not going to budge on this. He's a murderer and he needs to die to, right. you know, in the courtroom saying that he supports Brian Stevenson. I thought that was really interesting. Well, the, the whole the whole end scene because he like he like approaches the bench and he tells the, the judge that he's in trouble after mm-hmm. you know Brian Stevenson's amazing speech or amazing <laughs> opening statement. 
Um, at first, I thought he was trying to do some sort of like like a mind game. Like I'm I'm troubled. This man's a murderer. And right, yeah. right. Like like some some sort of fear based rhetoric. But I'm really glad that that he decided to you know go against what he was taught to do. Because I, I I can't imagine that being a district attorney a, attorney is an easy job. Mm-hmm. Um, representing you know just a community is very very difficult. Um, mm-hmm. But I also think that you know if if we think about it from from not just Michael B. Jordan's perspective, but from Chapman's perspective, the uh, DA. So you have a young woman murdered in your community. You need to have someone go away for it. Um, they don't know who did it. The, the the police are trying, but you know, all of a sudden, they they have this person that has already committed, you know, an infidelity. So they're 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 not perfect. So why don't we why don't we scapegoat them and why don't we use another felon to kind of you know use some scare tactics for him? So right. I think that so by obviously by like by like putting Johnny D away, it benefits. The, the community because they have a face to go with with the horrible act and you know it helps the uh, sheriff because he since he's in charge of the police force there then he he did he did the right thing he he sent a murderer away you know it's significantly more complicated than that mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um well okay Last character before we move on the theme. Well, actually, I kind of want to talk about them together. I thought, so Johnny D played by Jamie Foxx. And then I thought his wife, their dynamic was really, really interesting. Her name I was Minnie. I like the wife a lot. She isn't in, she's in like, I think like four scenes, but they're all really, really good. Um, mm-hmm. I love the first scene whenever he's sitting there talking to the family and the, the grandma keeps refilling the uh, sweet tea. Yeah. And like pours <laughs> it all the way up to the top. I thought that was yeah. really, really, like, like it was a very nice touch and very true. Um, <laughs> Well, and sorry, Um, the fact that Brian Stevenson went to Johnny D's home, met his family, sat with them, talked about like the legal strategy. That was the thing that turned Johnny D into being a little more hopeful because when Brian first met with him, he's just like, no way, no how I'm not doing this. And then he heard that Brian went to his his family's home. He, He finally trusted like, you're different than all the other lawyers. Like my other lawyers wouldn't even like return phone calls. Um, and so it was nice to see that like Johnny D was able to trust him just because Brian went and like, you know, talked to his family and sat at their table and drank the tea and all that sort of stuff. And I really liked, so this is just like a insight into my, my personal life, but my husband and I will talk about like, what's the worst thing that we can do to each other and we still won't get divorced. And we're always like a little unsure about affairs. My favorite. We have kids now. We, you know, like we know about people who've had affairs and they've gotten divorced or some stay together. And so we think about it and this movie, I sat and I looked at him, I go, all right, if you have an affair, but then you're somehow put on death row and you're innocent, I'll stay with you. And that's what Minnie, Minnie did. Like she, I mean, I, maybe she wasn't going to divorce him, but she supported him so much. And it was because of the fact that he was being put to death. And, and he even like Johnny D said, like, I don't know why, like, she's still here for me. Cause you know, I cheated on her, but I liked, I liked that she was fighting for justice for him, even though he did something wrong to her. Right. I don't know. It was just, it was very, uh, I always like stories that like show really strong relationships, even if, you know, someone makes a mistake. Oh, Mm -hmm. definitely. Mm -hmm. Um, 
they weren't they weren't main characters by any stretch of the imagination, but his kids were really good too. Like the, mm-hmm. the act the actors, especially the, his older son. Um, mm-hmm. Like the whole moment where where the judge uh, denies the retrial, and, he, and mm-hmm. he like stands up and like, "My dad didn't do anything." Like I don't understand. Like why is this so broken? Why can't you see it? He didn't do anything wrong, and he gets you know taken to the ground. Doesn't resist, which is good. But yeah, it's. Whew. But the sheriff controlled like that whole courtroom with his. Eyes. I know. Yeah. And, you know, he, all he had to do was just give a, a small nod, and there they go. And then also intimidating Ralph Myers on the stand, like right. That was like oh. dang. he's like the whole courtroom is like under his control. It's crazy. They swing a heavy axe. The sheriffs yeah. do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Depending on the on the community, but definitely. But I also, so I was trying to really see where the judge was coming from in the scene where he denies the retrial. Mm-hmm. So if if he did lie on the stand, that does mean that he would lie again. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, Ralph was not very credible. No. But at the same time, if, you, if you're going to throw out his entire testimony and just say that he's a perjurer, then I would, I mean, I would still, you know, do the retrial because... That was the only piece of evidence that was that was indicating. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Well, at this time in the in the late eighties, early nineties, how big was like forensic evidence? Did they have the the science that we have now, where a lot of our court system relies on forensic evidence? But then also, I've heard that maybe like the like media has portrayed that the forensic evidence is more truthful than we realize or something. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? I feel yes. like I yes. watched something where they were like blood spatter sweater analysis is actually not that strong, but if, without any sort of physical evidence, mm-hmm. like, did they have anything else that they could have even gone off of? They didn't. But, but, but the problem is um, from, from the sheriff's perspective, if this court, if this case gets thrown out, then that undoes all the work that he did to make sure. Mm-hmm. And it does also, ex- um, it does introduce the idea of corruption and you know in a small tight-knit community like uh, monroeville alabama you find out that the sheriff is corrupt all of a sudden he loses re-election so it's kind of the whole thing about what is it from game of thrones chaos is in a pit it's a ladder mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and so the whole the whole idea is that once you once you give the community reason to not trust you then it's just going to keep mounting and keep mounting. Although we find out that's not true because after they dropped the case, um, he got reelected every year until he retired in 2019. Yeah, well, unfortunately, (laughs) if enough time passes, people forget about wrongs and rights. They just kind of continue on. Yeah. All right, moving on to theme. Um, So what is the theme's... Sorry, what is the story's theme and what scenes contribute to it? I never came up with a solid theme. So I, I do not get full points on my notes. Um, <laughs> in terms of the of the theme, I really just want to... Okay, so Brian Stevenson is obviously the main character of the movie. He's the protagonist. Mm-hmm. At, at, at what point do we want to consider... So the thing about his character portrayment is that he doesn't he's portrayed as hyper as hyper competent um mm-hmm. which i think is fine in a courtroom movie because we don't really need to see like him like with like a drinking problem or 
or like him like being homeless or him like having like a strained relationship with his family or anything like that because that's not the point the movie isn't about him it's about what Mm -hmm. he fought for right so i think the portrayal of him being hyper competent hyper competent allows him to kind of deliver the theme of the movie which is um and he says that I think towards towards the end, maybe even in the scene where he's talking to the Senate with with Johnny D. Dude, well, so that was the the line that I was thinking. He says the the opposite of wealth is not poverty, or no, the opposite of poverty is not wealth; it's justice. Right. Mm-hmm. I was thinking more along the lines of when he says that no one is is uh, no one should be described by the worst thing they've ever done. Mm-hmm. Because in this case, you know, Johnny D didn't do anything. But everyone thought that he did because it made sense and fit into this, like, you know, narrative of like, oh, well, it's us versus them. And I think that that's a very, it's a very incomplete argument. Um, So since we're going to talk about Malcolm X next week uh, in the podcast, um, I will share a, so I, I, this, this interview with him has been thrown around on TikTok uh, quite a bit. And the question was, I mean, obviously Malcolm X is dead, but he was he was interviewed in the late 60s. And the question was, do you hate all white people? And the like immediately, without even thinking about it, he says, I don't think that's a fair question. Um, to 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 assume that I would hate all white people is is I, like I and I agree that it's not a fair question because you can't just ask someone if they hate an um the members of an entire race because unless you're a complete card carrying psychopath, you're not going to answer. Yeah. Or or anything like that. Um, Obviously the the first answer was going to be, no, what, what are you talking about? Of course. Why, why would I, why, why would I hate all people of a certain race? But then he goes on to describe the fact that, you know, uh, Malcolm X was a, was a Muslim uh, or member of the nation of Islam, which is different. Which is different than Islam. Yeah. Uh, and he mentions that the prophet Muhammad says to, to, um, to let fellow man worry about themselves. And then he goes on to, to say, so you're asking me someone that's being marginalized by the white community, um, whose ancestors were stolen away from our motherland and then, um, enslaved, treated as, treated as worse than cattle, treated as, uh, commodities to other people. You're asking me if I hate white people um, when, when history has, you know, essentially put, put, put us at the bottom of the totem pole this entire time. Mm -hmm. And so the idea was that I think that they, that the question was meant to bait him into saying an anti-white statement because that's all they want. I mean, when they were alive, MLK and Malcolm X were the most hated people in America. Mm -hmm. And I think that it, it really shows that it it was great how educated that he was because he was able to answer the question without coming across as a villain, mm-hmm. but still also educating the person asking the question about why that's a ridiculous question. Like mm-hmm. it it's insane to ask anybody if they hate any member of a certain race, because when it comes down to it, you know, Hey, Jim Crow was less than a hundred years ago. Like, you know, the last, the last, like, like Emmett Till, he would have been like 75 today. Like mm-hmm. Ruby Bridges, the first person to go to an integrated school, is 65 years old. We have coworkers that are 65. She's, she's got an Instagram account. Old. Yeah. She's an Instagram? Mm-hmm. 
Mm -hmm. She took over Selena Gomez's Instagram for like a day. Ruby Bridges has an Instagram. That's awesome. Yeah, it might have been for this recent campaign. Um, but before we move on, I well, and we'll talk about Malcolm X next week, obviously. Um, but it should be noted that Malcolm X did leave Nation of Islam, mm -hmm. and then he did he converted to Islam. But we'll talk about it more next week. But anyways, of course. Um, so while you we were talking, Mr. Smith, I just I wonder because so this was based on a true story, but of course they made up some things like conversations and right. all those sorts of things to create like a narrative. I wonder because the, the 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 significance and the focus on the parallels between To Kill Mockingbird and what was actually happening in Monroeville. I wonder if the theme has something to do with like Atticus Finch talks about um, justice, right? And then that allegory with the dog with rabies and Atticus misses the dog. Um, it's predicting, like foreshadowing that justice is going to miss its mark when with Tom Robinson. So I wonder if maybe this film, Just Mercy's theme has something to do with, like we have a little bit more control over justice than maybe we realize. Cause we see individuals take control um, with their of their actions to find justice for Johnny D. So we see Brian Stevenson, a Harvard graduate from the North come down and help um, these death row prisoners when he could have started a law firm and made a bunch of money. He's just doing it from a grant. And then we have Brie Larson's character, Eva. She's not even being paid. She's helping him out. We mm -hmm. have Ralph Myers, who is a convicted felon. He tells the truth, even though it could get him in trouble. We see the DA make a decision to go against the sheriff. So mm -hmm. I wonder if maybe maybe this film is trying to tell us, like, if you if you take action and do the difficult thing, justice is more obtainable for people. Maybe. I like that theme. That's a good one. Because there was so think? much. There's so much like connection to To Kill a Mockingbird. It has to be significant. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, oh, so here's the thing. So they, they bring up To Kill a Mockingbird really early in the movie. Mm -hmm. Twice. They don't mention it again, though, which I think is, well, well, I think, do, do they talk about it in the 60 Minutes? Like slightly? I don't remember that. I don't, maybe I don't remember. I don't remember. But, um, but I do think that, you know, the whole idea behind To Kill a Mockingbird and, you know, books like it, like, so To Kill a Mockingbird of Mice and Men, um, Huck Finn. The reason why we teach these books is because we want to show people like, hey, these are societal problems that we have to, you know, like, we, we, we can't just ignore them. Um, and I think that it really goes to show that there's a difference between reading To Kill a Mockingbird and understanding To Kill a Mockingbird mm -hmm. and then wanting to advocate for what, for the beliefs that To Kill a Mockingbird was about. So we can see that Tom Robinson was innocent, but he dies anyway. Um, Herbert was not innocent, but he didn't get the help that he needed and they still killed him. Um, mm -hmm. Donnie D was innocent and he is saved. Hinton was innocent, but he was saved, but not after, but, but not until being on death row for 30 years. So like, you know, one whole third of his life, at least third is just gone because he was in the penitentiary. So I think that it really, really goes to show that we, we can read these books and we can be like, yeah, racism is bad and all that stuff. Um, but the people in the movie that are trying to get him to go to the Harper Lee Museum and all that stuff, they like to talk about To Kill a Mockingbird as though it solved the problems mm -hmm. that are still very apparent. And so I think that 
I do think it's an idea, a good idea to use To Kill a Mockingbird to kind of springboard into that theme. But I think that the theme should always be, we are not done. Like, like mm-hmm. in, in order to, to, to advocate for justice, you have to, you have to meet someone halfway. And we see, you know, the DA change. We see Brian Stevenson being, being the, the like static character, but he, he doesn't change. He gets, you know, deconstructed a little bit and kind of like, beaten down but he doesn't change his goal and he continues to do what he continues to do we see eva ansley not not changing kind of just support him even though she's tried with the whole bomb threat thing we mm-hmm. see ralph myers who was just you know a felon looking out for himself but he was also the the um result of a broken system the foster care system uh mm-hmm. where i can't remember it's either the first interview or the second interview but he tells second uh he tells brian Stevens and he's like well to be honest with you, anytime that the government found out that I had bad parents, they would just ship, ship me off to, 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 uh, to even worse people. And so mm-hmm. because of that, because he was so disenfranchised, he just thought that he could look out for himself. That's why he asked for like soda and the candy whenever he first uh, comes out to talk to Brian. But then the second time he kind of, and I love the way that um, that, that scene was handled because Brian Stevenson makes him look at Johnny D first and then he asks him again because at first he kind of doesn't want to he doesn't want to recant his story but mm-hmm. then after he looks at him then he kind of realizes oh my lie took away years from this man's life and I can set it right and so he chooses to do that and I like that they kind of showed us that at the end you know he got out of prison too you know I don't know what he did I can't remember but. he just yeah he served his sentence or whatever it was mm-hmm. I, I, I like think- that You know, I was thinking about themes the whole time I was watching this, and I think that the theme here is that just like democracy, justice is something that we all have to work towards to achieve, and it's a constant wheel, because if not, then you'll have underlining corruption, you'll have things that are obscure, you need to bring those to light in order for justice to be served, and you need to bring those to light in order for democracy to be equal for all. I think that's- I like that a lot. I like, Mm -hmm. that's actually, I I wasn't gonna say it exactly like that, but yeah, no, I think you're right, Ms. Ramirez, because you see evidence of things that, so the people in Monroeville think they've solved racism because of To Kill a Mockingbird, but like when Brian is first going to meet that, the first prisoner, um, he's just communicating information to him when he's driving, to the prison, you see a bunch of prisoners who are predominantly black men working like out in a field while mm-hmm. there's two guards or white men on horses with guns. And like, if you just looked at that, I could easily see someone thinking it's a movie about slavery. Like it, it visually looked a lot like the depictions of slavery that we know today. Um, and then there was also another one, but you just, you see all these, these um, scenes that it's very clear that like it's, the underlying biases that they're not paying attention to that's leading to these problems and they just they're complacent with them because it doesn't really affect right. them. And there's a parallel I feel like with the mentioning of To Kill a Mockingbird with uh, Brian Stinson, a parallel to the character of Atticus, you know, someone who's going to work towards bringing justice. And even at the end of the film, what does he say? He doesn't think he can change the world, but thinks that he can make the change for one person. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I mean, 
the the infographic at the end says that the Equal Justice Initiative has gotten 140 people uh, that were wrongfully accused off of death row, mm -hmm. which, I mean, is not a lot of number. I mean, it's not a big number when you think about like all the COVID cases that are popping up right now. But I mean, that's 140 worlds that got changed. Right. Well, and it said for every nine people executed in the U.S., one person on death row has been found innocent and released. One out of nine are wrongly put on death row. That's insane. Yeah. That's insane. Like if we graded something one out, of one out of nine times just wrong, like we just gave a kid a failing grade that didn't deserve it, like we wouldn't have a job anymore. Right. That I think is probably like the most... That's why I, I'm so frustrated with, with, with the protests and stuff too. And like the, the, cause certain jobs are held to such higher accountability than others. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Um, well, I think this would be a good time to move to the connections. What connections can we make to our society or to ourselves? Um, well, the equal justice initiative is still going strong. Um, mm -hmm. Whenever I share this podcast on my Facebook, I will create a or I will um, attach a link to their donation. Uh, Brian Stevenson is still going strong. He is very much alive. Um, Johnny D unfortunately passed away in 2013 from early onset dementia. Um, it is believed that his time in death row did uh, weigh heavily on him afterwards. And so that probably did happen as a result of his false incarceration. Uh, but the Equal Justice Initiative, um, they handle their their donations very well. You don't have to worry about you know um, you know a bunch of celebrities sending millions of dollars to random random uh, Black Lives Matter movements. No, um, the Equal Justice Initiative is trying to combat mass incarceration, just like we see in this movie. Um, Eva Ansley is still the operations manager. They are still you know doing the right work for the right people. Uh, so I, I think it connects to our society because, you know, this story happened the same time Rugrats did. Like, <laughs> like, like we were, we, we were toddlers and, you know, this just started. And I'm, I hope that it continues to grow and I hope that it continues to move forward. Um, when I was watching this, it made me think of Trevor Noah's book, Born a Crime, which I recently finished. And it's so good. And so um, you should read it if you get a chance. Um, he, he talks about apartheid. So the separation of the races in South Africa, which happened more recently than Jim Crow. And it was a little more aggressive than just separation. He described apartheid as slavery, Jim Crow, um, and something else. I can't even think the third thing all at the same time. Um, and he has this passage where he says, we, in society, we do horrible things to one another because we don't see the person it affects. We don't see their face. We don't see them as people, which is, was the whole reason the hood he's talking about, like ghettos essentially in South Africa was built in the first place to keep the victims of apartheid out of sight and out of mind. Because if white people ever saw black people as human, they would see that slavery is wrong. We live in a world where we don't see the ramifications of what we do to others because we don't live with them. And I think like I could go through my life not worried about the people on death row or the people in the prison system because really I don't have a connection to them. Um, and I think it's really dangerous to think that just because we don't see how the society that, you know, makes lets me live so um, luxuriously, um, just complaining that my Wi-Fi doesn't reach all parts of my house because my house is too big. Um, 
like I'm okay. (laughs) I, uh, like just because I don't see those things doesn't mean that I should ignore them because those people are human beings. And if we don't see other people who are different and who are being affected by things in the world that we don't aren't affected by, like justice is never going to be served, but we're never going to have a true democracy. We're never going to have a real equal society, which everybody says they want, but you do have to like really think about how society benefits you and hurts others um, Mm -hmm. and try to figure out what you can do. And even if that's just like, like the wife, the the wife of the DA, even if it's just like looking at someone in your family who's supporting that system and like showing them that you think they're doing something wrong, like that could just be, that could be something. Yeah. I think it's important to, to think about like, what can we do? Mm -hmm. I think the connection for me that connects it to our world today is when Johnny D and Brian are talking and Johnny D tells Brian, you're guilty the moment you're born. Mm -hmm. And being a black man in the South, he says, I look like a man who could kill somebody. And that, that, that pains him and that hurts him. And black people in this country have lived in fear and are still living in fear. And when you think of all of the recent things that have happened, you know, uh, it reminded me of that protest poster I saw that said, I can't go jogging, Ahmaud Aubrey. I can't, I, I, you know, I'm detained by police, George Floyd. I, you know, I can't sleep in my own home, Breonna Taylor. And, and so it's like, what is it that black people can do in this country without living in fear? And the fact that he's like Johnny D said, you're guilty the moment you're born. And that yeah. that's that that's that it's not it just doesn't pain Johnny D. It pains all black people in our country. And that to me is just no one should live like that. I would mm-hmm. agree. Mm-hmm. And and I and I hear a lot of people um, in the in the online discourse like why does everything have to be made about race why does everything have to be like this or that and it doesn't matter if you're black white and i hate when people say purple there are no purple people so so stop (laughs) saying purple people like but i think it's important to acknowledge that hey i don't look the same as you we're not the same gender we're not the same sexual orientation we're not the same this we're not the same that like i'm rich you're poor blah 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 we are different people so let's acknowledge that and move forward instead of just saying Oh, well, like, you know, I think that everyone's important. Yes, everyone's important in your small microcosm of a world that you can only like maintain, I think upwards of what, 25 like really healthy relationships with. There are billions of people on the planet. And I'm not saying that like we all need to, you know, um, throw off the shackles of society and burn all this to the ground. But I do think mm-hmm. that, we, that we probably need to be decent human beings and we need to be able to understand each other even if we don't have the same experiences. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because at the end of the day, critical thinking and empathy are the only things that are going to, you know, save humanity that, and probably a vaccine, but right. <laughs> you know, that's a couple of years down the line. Um, I think something else, and I don't know if I just mentioned this when we were talking before we started recording, um, but the death penalty always throws me off so much because I lived a very sheltered life up until about high school because like at the beginning of elementary school, you don't know what's going on in the world. And then I went to a private school for some reason, they like never talked about anything bad. I didn't know wars still existed like in our current lifetime. I remember I went to a public school 
in the fifth grade and somebody said something about World War II and I asked them what that was because I thought the only two wars to ever exist was the Revolutionary and the Civil War. And so like, same with the death penalty. I like, I had heard about it, but I thought it was like this ancient concept. And then I don't know when it was, I realized there were states where the death penalty still existed and it really threw me off. And it's just like, maybe it's because of my growing up in Michigan where the death penalty has been abolished. Like, I just think the death penalty is crazy. I mm -hmm. cannot believe it still exists. And I know that there's a lot of people who will like cite reasons for the death penalty. Cause there are people who commit heinous crimes, terrible. And like, I fear it as a woman and as a mother. And like, I, I, you know, we all watch, um, those like CSI shows of like terrible things and special victims unit stuff. But like, I went through, I didn't go through all, the whole list of all the prisoners that have been executed in Texas in recent years, but I went through a lot and most of them were just, they murdered someone in an armed robbery. They, like there were very few, like really gruesome crimes. Mm -hmm. They're just kind of like, they're committing a crime with a gun and they shot someone and that person died in the process. And while it's terrible that, per, you know, that person's friends and families lost someone, that person lost the rest of their life and all that sort of stuff. I just, we're taking away someone's family and friends and we're taking away their future because really we say that the prison system is to rehabilitate these people. They're, they're serving their time and becoming better people so they can be released back into society. But we're not, that's not even an option for these people. And like, and we talked about before, like if you don't have the money to have a good lawyer, there's a good chance that, you know, you're just going to be put, yeah, you're, you're just going to be put on death row because there's, you don't have an argue, uh, you don't have a lawyer arguing against it. I just, I think it's insane. I think it's crazy. Mm -hmm. Did you ever see either one of you dead man walking with Tim Robbins film with like uh, Susan Sarandon as this nun? who works with Sean Penn, who's a prisoner, that that will change your perspective also on like, you know, I mean, it changed my perspective. Not that I knew anything as a kid. I mean, it came out when I was younger, but when I saw it as an adult, why I'm against the death penalty. And you're right, you're, you're taking away a human life. Like, does it does it really balance out is the big question, no. Does I always love, Mr. Smith, you might know, there's, like those uh, an, uh anticipation statements. I don't remember which book it was oh, for, but yep. it's like, it's, it's should you avenge? Okay, should you avenge like the death of someone? And like, you know, there's always people love it. I, I co-taught with a teacher. She's like, you touch a hair on my kid's head, I will kill you. And she would go like hard about this. And there were kids who supported her. And I just love the kid who's like, well, then that someone in their family hurt someone in your family, and the cycle never stops. And like, I th we're creating a cycle of death and violence. And it, it blows my mind that people, you know, they go and watch executions. Mm -hmm. I heard on, I think it was NPR after I moved down here, I didn't know there was a college near a prison, but I don't, I don't want to name the college because I feel like I know what it is, but I don't want to insult anybody, but they hold parties before executions. <gasps> like their Jesus. frats have execution parties. If that's true, then that's, that's I heard, job. Look, look up what the word I don't remember the school. <laughs> That's insane. Well, I mean, Shakespeare, hello, eye for an eye and Romeo and Juliet. I mean, that, the whole Montague and Capulet, that's never ending. I mean, yeah. <laughs> perfect example. But didn't they stop fighting after the two idiot children killed, killed yeah, themselves? Yeah, apparently, but whatever. 
we all know Romeo and Juliet is just a bunch of kids who didn't think straight for a couple of days. <laughs> a couple of days. That's all it was. It was like four days. Yeah, it was a couple away. of days. I don't <laughs> Uh, it's just such an archaic like idea like you kill someone in my family i'm gonna kill someone in your family. Like, it's, it's no i mean it's wild being in world history and be like all right and then they had hammurabi's code but that was like thousands of years ago <laughs> right essentially um, the same thing um i mean i've been against the death penalty since i watched john oliver's video on botched um lethal that was like that was like last year but it is it's it's still good because so because we, mr smith you mentioned the fact that you're surprised that the, the electric chair is still an option but lethal injection john oliver explained isn't always a pain-free option no, like and I, and then we have to sit down and think about like what's the easiest way to kill someone how about just not killing them like exactly. i'm not saying i'm against life sentences or i saw a headline that someone is serving a, you know they just were given a three life sentence you know three different like which of course you'll never get out that's that's fine like that's a better solution than trying to kill somebody like like put them in a hole let them be socialized let them work for the prison industrial complex which holes taught us about um like <laughs> which is is as 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 a fully formed adult like reading holes when i was like 12 i was like man it's so cool like the onions taste that good, but, but then, <laughs> like when I grow up, I'm like, wait a second. They were using slave labor to find buried treasure from the mm -hmm. Wild West, <laughs> and, I, and I saw like a tweet as soon as all the all of the um, um, all the protest tweets started coming. I was like, why is anyone surprised this happening when when Holes taught us all about the prison industrial complex? Like, and I was like, man, I I really wasn't paying attention to that book. Well, I was paying we were attention, young. but I was really excited about the rap song they had at the beginning. Also, there's a sequel. Did you know that? No, I didn't. There's a sequel to Holes, and Armpit is the main character. Oh, I did know that, I think. He gets released, uh, and I think it deals with racism. So, hmm. Something Racist. that I recently learned about prison, which I did not know. Did you know they use they count prisoners in the census? which decides how many representatives each state get each state gets in the house of representatives so so like every state has two senators um so there's a hundred senators and then the house of representatives is based on population and prisoners are counted but they cannot vote so they are counted but they don't have the opportunity to vote for the people that are representing them that's insane that's some three-fifths compromise stuff right there. there. Okay, so in my notes, I had I pulled some information about um, prisoners use, uh, being counted in the census, and then I was like, that sounds like the three-fifths compromise, and I pulled some notes on that. And that's exactly what's happening is like, so they're taking people, and the three-fifths compromise took black people, and now we just have prisoners of all races and genders and ages, and they're being used to increase your rep uh, certain areas representation in the government. It's insane. Like, so you have so a higher things. incentive to incarcerate people that will never get a chance to vote again. It, oh, like, my head hurts. Voter suppression. Like, that's crazy. I do think, though, in like, there are two states, Maine and Vermont, felons can vote. Um, so those are the two in the very small states uh, where they, they're they counted and they can vote. 
What does the rendering map look like? Like, where does the prison? Like, oh, that's crazy. I would like to see like a prison and see how the does the gerrymandering, you know, border go around it or across it or through it. Or I bet it does. The podcast <laughs> is sponsored by Aleve because I have a headache. <laughs> like I started, I started this episode mad, but now I'm just like, oh, oh my it, god! And people think it's okay too. Is the man? I think the true walk away from this is when you watch something, do some research and like learn, cause it, this story showed us, you know, three men on death row and their experiences and how a lawyer um, was trying to serve, you know, find justice for them. And we, we landed ourselves on a lot of different things um, that are still happening today. This isn't just, this isn't just Alabama in the 1980s and 1990s. This is across our nation right now. Yes. Wow. Amen. All right, and on that note, do your research, guys. Um, and we're gonna watch Malcolm X, which is on Netflix, and it's played by uh, Malcolm X is played by Denzel Washington. All right, I think, all right. I think Denzel <laughs> playing Malcolm. What's wrong with it? Um, and Spike Lee makes a cameo as Shorty, his friend. I didn't know that. I've read I read the autobiography of Malcolm X, but I've never watched the movie, so I'm excited to watch it. See I'm how much I remember. Because Malcolm X is gets um I mean, I don't know if you guys remember. I remember him being in like three paragraphs in our history book. So let's get some more info on him. He's mm -hmm. uh, got a very interesting story. Yes. Do we have any teacher tips this week? My teacher tip is to start reading. Like I feel like I keep saying it all the time. But I used to, I went to a training and they were like, make a name tent with your name and what you're reading. And I was like, I don't read. I don't have time to read. And because of this quarantine, I just found the time to read. And it's like, it. remember when you were a kid and you loved reading a book and you carried it around? Like, that's what I've turned into. And it's, it makes me really happy. Yeah, dinosaurs. Uh, actually, Miss Rodriguez inspired me. Uh, I started reading books on my phone. I don't know why. why. I actually switched from that because I was reading books that were supposed to teach our students next year and I would highlight and I'm like, well, I lose the highlights when I return it to the library. Um, so I just bought some books. But yeah. And for those either works. students that are auditory learners, you don't have to necessarily read it. Use Audible. The app is awesome. You can have like, it's like a book on tape. I use it for my drive between my mom's house in the Valley in San Antonio. You can also check to see if YouTube has um, the audio book. There you that's go. Where, that's where us teachers find the audiobooks yep. when we need them. <laughs> yep. Fair use, right? Well, no, we never use audiobooks. We just post them on Google Classroom for our students. That's right. As as a as a um, what's the word I'm thinking of? Scaffolding. Mm -hmm. um, my teacher tip is watch Thirteenth. Like I cannot stress how it's the greatest. I like, and I hate. I hate calling documentaries like, like I, I hate taking them at face value because you can't take documentaries at face value. You watch Tiger King, you laughed, you 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 danced the Carol Baskin TikTok dance. But 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 let me I learn you something. Do you know how many hours of Tiger King got um, edited because Joe Exotic is absolutely super racist? Like they cut so much of it out, and you know. 
I'm just saying, like d- documentaries can be manipulative. Thirteenth is not manipulative because it is just truth. It's, it's a persuasive essay. It's a really just good like persuasive we teach, essay. We teach yeah. our students to present an argument and support it. Yeah. yeah. All righty. Well, this was uh, I think about an hour and a half. Yep. <laughs> so if you're still listening, thank you. Yeah. You're the best. All right, guys. We'll see you next week. Yep. Bye. Next week. Malcolm X on Netflix. Um, hit us up on Twitter. Email us. Um, have a great 4th of July. <laughs>